Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Wilander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Hello, folks, and welcome one last time to The Tennis Podcast's Olympics Relived, if it sounds like I'm crying. It's probably because I am crying. Not yet, but but you know, I'm anticipating possibly crying at some stage. I I can't believe we've relived all these Olympics and and it's nearing. The end is nigh. David, I've loved it. I've loved it so much. Is that clear? Is that, <laughs> yes. Is that uh, in evidence? We can always we can always relive them again. <laughs> <laughs> Re relived. We can relive the podcasts about the Olympics. Oh, do you remember when Matt said that? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do that in 10 years, right? Right, okay. Deal. And hopefully we'll have another cu- couple of Olympics to relive at that point. But who knows at this stage? Um, we'll be doing a little look ahead um, at the end of this podcast to, to Tokyo 2021, what we assume will be Tokyo 2021. But of course, there are absolutely no guarantees at the moment. Um which is why we're focusing on the past, because <laughs> it's a place of certainty and security where we know what's going to happen. Um, and Rio de Janeiro 2016 was only four years ago, but it's still kind of like we were saying with London, feels like a slightly different time, doesn't it? It's still, I don't know, it's it's in sepia in my memory somehow, despite only being four years ago. Yeah. Cracky. That that really hits me th- thinking about it in those terms, you know. And actually, when you when we start watching these these storylines, I do kind of get lost in time a bit. And I think partly because some of these players that we've been covering, their careers are so long now. Rafael Nadal winning in Beijing in two thousand eight. I I kind of almost get mixed up between that one and him playing in 2016 and that uh, in 2016's he won the doubles didn't he with Mark mm. Lopez you know and I, I kind of get confused about what he did when and and it's just the sheer longevity of these guys career and I think I've heard the the great American sports writer Wright Thompson has said has said this year that sport marks the passage of time and mm. Everyone has their own personal experience of an Olympics as well, and it can it can feel weird that where you were was four years ago. Like like for me, Rio marked 
a slightly strange time in my life where it was just the start of my year abroad. I was living in France and I remember the Rio Olympics being very, very grounding for me. It was it was something that was kind of two weeks of familiarity in a way in an uncertain time. So I look back on it with hugely, hugely fond memories as Rio Olympics because they were kind of helpful personally. I mean, not not that helpful because I was having to stay up in the middle of the night watching it <laughs> and then go to work. I had a, I had a nine to five job um, in France and that was, I mean, that was a struggle to, uh, to kind of <laughs> in itself. But particularly when I would stayed up until three or four in the morning watching uh, watching the Rio Olympics. But yeah, I think just it's as much as we can relive the sport. I think the secondary effect of reliving is that you end up kind of reliving your own life in a way. Mm. Um, for Rio 2016, certainly for the first few days, I was in San Diego on holiday. Um, I had just worked at the um, Masters event in Toronto uh, and uh, a friend and I decided to tag on a week in San Diego afterwards because I'd never been there before. And I thought, fine, I'll be on the same time zone as Rio, pretty much closer time zone. I think it was an hour or two difference. So I'll be able to basically what I envisaged was lying at a beach slash being in a bar with a cocktail with the Olympics on a device. Great. Living the dream, Kath. Well done. Um, it, what actually <laughs> what actually happened was it emerged that very it was a very good friend I was on holiday with. We are still good friends, but our compatibility as as holiday companions emerged not to be necessarily that great <laughs> quite early on because <laughs> she really liked organized activity based fun. Uh, and I liked, <laughs> I liked sitting, <laughs> sitting and watching and lying and being. I mean, I do like, you know, I like a city break and stuff as well. But that, as far as I was concerned, this holiday was lying on a beach in a coma. Um, and after <laughs> after an about excursion. three, we we both went to we both went both went to a beach and we sort of put our towels down, lay down, put my earphones in, and after three minutes, I got a tap on the shoulder, going, oh, "Do you want to?" Do you want to go kayaking? No, I absolutely don't. Um, anyway, yeah. anyway, so Olympics opening ceremony day comes around. And I think, right, we've just got to pick, uh, pick all the bars will be showing it. So I've just got to pick the best bar. That's my only job for today to pick the best, the optimal bar for watching the opening ceremony. Now, I'm sure every US listener right now is screaming at me that there's a flaw in this plan. But I, unbeknownst to me, there was a major flaw in the plan, but I had no no idea of it. And that is the West Coast, the West Coast of America. I don't know how to express this. They play things on tape. If something is look at the look in her face. <laughs> I'm not explaining this very well. So, in the, if something is happening at, at 5 p.m. in the live at 5 p.m. on America's East Coast, and that would be what 1 p.m. on America's West Coast, rather than them just playing them both out live at what are relatively different times, the West Coast will wait until 5 p.m. and play the live thing out on a four-hour delay, which in the year 2020 or 2016 as it was then feels utterly bananas to me so I could not find a single bar showing the Olympics because it wasn't on the telly live 
in San Diego, they were like, oh, NBC are playing that later. Like, but it's happening now. Okay, but we'll be showing it later. It, irrelevant, it's happening now. Um, anyway, I ended up watching it on my phone uh, using a VPN that I paid through the nose for on the BBC coverage. So I had lovely Hugh Edwards in my ear and uh, my friend went and spent the day with a family friend elsewhere. We were going to make this one, we were going to make this one shorter, weren't we? <laughs> I didn't know that about the West and East Coast. I've always felt like being whenever I've been in America, it's always felt like when you wake up in the morning you are trying to catch up. But it sounds like even when you're in America you're having to catch up if you live on the West Coast. But do they do they Gosh. I know, I know. It was it was harrowing, Matt. It was really harrowing. Um yeah. I feel like this has been quite a useful process, though, talking <laughs> it through on the tennis podcast, Catherine. You know, we've relived your angst-filled days yeah. that were supposed to be relaxing with a friend that no longer thinks <laughs> that you're a great companion on a holiday. We've dis- we discussed it at the time. It was pretty clear. You know, she went off and did organised canoe trips. I sat in a bar. Fine. Everyone's a winner. Um <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is that the the opening ceremony, and I know it was a tough act to follow, and I know budget was an issue for for. I'm not having a go here. Um, you know, it's not as it's not as wealthy a country as other um, Olympic host nations, but it was an underwhelming opening ceremony. I remember it was just sort of some fireworks and then Giselle walking down a catwalk. That is what I remember. I'm not sure I've ever seen the Rio opening ceremony I, I don't think I saw it live I'm not as I'm not as big on the opening ceremony as you are I don't think I don't think I was until London 2012 okay. when you know that was two hours that changed my life and I so expectations were high for Rio um and they weren't quite met I, I but don't it was a I tough don't remember act to too much about it I mean if you consider then the first nine minutes of these, this podcast, I've already been interrupted by my son twice, who's <laughs> left the door open, and I've had to walk off and go and close it. Um, you can imagine what it was like four years ago when there were two of them running around and uh, interrupting my enjoyment of the Olympics. So uh, I don't remember too much about it, in all honesty. Shall I refresh your memory about what was happening outside of tennis to start with? Well, golf and rugby appeared at the Games after 112 and 92 years, respectively. Um, two transgender athletes competed. Their names and nationalities were not revealed, though. 32 tonnes of dead fish were removed from the rowing and canoeing lagoon before the activities took place. Uh, Three teaspoons of water from Guanabara Bay, the sailing venue, is the amount that could be swallowed before leading to illness. Um, Yeah, contaminated water is a bit of a theme. (laughs) Didn't the diving pool go green? It did go green, yes. Um, In better news, Usain Bolt achieved the triple-triple. Uh, here we go. The colour of the water at the Maria Lenk Aquatic Centre became a major talking point after it turned from aquatic blue to murky green overnight. Uh, games organisers blamed chemical levels in the water. And it was apparently completely harmless, uh, but it did look revolting. It just made diving into it look even more un- <laughs> unappealing than it already looks. Yes. 
Uh, Egyptian Islam al-Shahabi caused controversy when he refused to shake the hand of Israeli opponent Os Sassoon after losing in the men's judo. Al-Shahabi was roundly booed by the crowd and was later sent home from Rio, the IOC committee said, because that's very much not in the Olympic spirit. A nation gasped when he tripped and fell, but despite taking a mid-race tumble... Britain's Mo Farah became the first British track and field, a- field athlete to win three Olympic gold medals as he retained his 10,000 metre title with a thrilling victory. He went on to also win the 5,000 metres and complete the double double. Chinese diver Hei Zi had just collected her silver medal in the three metre women's springboard final when her fellow diver King Kai entered the podium presentation. He duly got down on one knee, produced an engagement ring and proposed. She said yes. I'm not a fan of public proposals, but I'm sure there are people out there that think that's lovely. Um, one of the <laughs> one of the most bizarre stories from Rio involved... Oh, I remember this. Involved American gold medal winning swimmers and a petrol station. Do you remember this? Oh, uh, Ryan Lochte, is it? Yeah, it's like a frat boy calamity story. Yes. Ryan Lochte, Jimmy Fagan and Jack Conger became embroiled in international scandal over a made-up robbery. The four swimmers alleged they had been held at gunpoint while buying petrol. It later emerged this was not true and they had vandalised the garage on the way home from a night of celebrations. What, in what <laughs> way is... Is vandalising a petrol station a, a form of celebration? I mean, oh, I think in frat boy land. I think it's post beers, which are yeah a form of celebration. I'm not saying it's what I do for fun, David. As we've established, I sit and watch and am in a coma for fun. Uh, but uh, I, yeah, I can imagine in that sort of fratty jock scenario it's like rock stars smashing up a hotel room isn't it it's the same vibe mm. i think i don't necessarily think it's right. relatable for your eye or you or me no, i don't i don't think i'm cut out for it anyway in the tennis um big change was that ranking points were not awarded um as they had been previously carolyn Wozniacki, rafael nadal and andy murray were all flag bearers for their nations i remember tennis being really well represented flag bearer wise at that opening ceremony you had carolina pliskova simona halep thomas burdick and milos raonic um who were the seeded players that withdrew due to concerns over the zika virus um, Ricardis Barankis, who one will remember from, oh God, no, when asked if he was my girlfriend fame. <laughs> uh, he became the first ever Lithuanian player to compete in the Olympics, but he was double bageled by John Millman in round one. So a real mixed bag of experiences for Ricardis. Catherine sent a message on our WhatsApp group saying, I've done the uh, the Rio research. I went to have a look at it. Top line, Ricardus <laughs> Brancus double bageled. <laughs> <laughs> well, he essentially double bageled me. Uh, yeah, and... well, that was the biggest mistake he ever made. <laughs> what goes around comes around, Ricardus. Uh, and if you, this was one of the weirdest stories. Benoit Pair 
was kicked off the French team after his loss to Fabio Fanini in the second round for, quote, flouting numerous rules. Team director Arno Di Pasquale said, you cannot flout the rules and the jersey like this. I asked him to pack his bags to do what he wants to do outside if desired. This is intolerable, unacceptable. He was warned several times. It was coming to him. Benoit Pair said, now I know how the Olympics are. I'm happy to leave. <laughs> and imagine out rule breaking Fabio Fanini. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't on court rule breaking. They were very, they never said what the specifics of the rule breaking was, but it was, I believe, off court rule breaking. I would love to see a match between those two in which they both started to turn into their alter egos. I'm sure that might happen for you in the future. If, if, it, if it's ever on the schedule, make sure you alert me and I will organise my day. Done. Like that day that at the Australian Open when uh, Danielle Collins and Yulia Putintseva faced off and we missed it, Matt. Or didn't you see the latter stages? No. It's, oh. it's one of our big regrets from this year's yep. Australian Open, isn't it? Missing, missing that... I think that was an evening where I was just sort of running between courts. Yeah, it was on that day after all the rain when there was too much tennis. Yeah, I remember putting it on the other monitor in the five live commentary box while I was supposed to be commentating on a match in front of me and <laughs> nobody could understand why I kept looking distracted and uh, <laughs> seemed to have lots of information about a match that nobody in our audience was interested in. I, I seem to remember it being slightly aggro-disappointing. There was a mo. I think there was aggro. At no, the end. I think it was pretty agrotastic at the end. Yeah, but I think before that it was disappointingly mm. unagrotastic. <laughs> In terms of the tennis, uh, the women's. Well, I mean, both competitions, all competitions were were really memorable in Rio. Uh, in the women's, Serena Williams, of course, the defender cha defending champion. I mean, I recall her being... She, she never put her loss down to this. She was very magnanimous in defeat to Alina Svitolina, the first ever in her career. But she was clearly struggling with a shoulder injury. I remember, remember her serve being massively subpar um, in that tournament. It never really looked likely that she was going to defend that Olympic gold. Um, and of course that, that, and, and a few other upsets, most of them, or not most of them, but some of them caused by the lady herself, Monica Puig, paved the way for one of the most romantic, surprising, uplifting, I mean, not for Gigi Fernandez, obviously, but, uh, stories in Olympic tennis history. And that is Monica Puig becoming the first Puerto Rican ever representing Puerto Rico to win an Olympic gold medal. I mean, talk about against the odds. She wasn't she wasn't a nobody. She was ranked 34th in the world, but she was unseeded. She'd only ever beaten one top 10 player in her career before the tournament and none that year. She beat two in Rio, in, uh, Gabini Muguruza and Angelique Kerber in the final. And of course, she beat Petra Kvitova, two-time Wimbledon champion in the semi-finals as well. Talk about Olympic inspiration. Something came over Monica Puig that week and she hasn't recaptured it since. She hadn't created it before. It was just, it was like a magic spell that she, that was cast upon her and that she cast upon the tennis venue that week. Yeah, I would say might be the most 
extreme example of that as the lot. I, I think Nicholas Massou is certainly one, but he was at the time a top 20 player and and knocking on the door of of having a big result at some point, and that ended up being his. But, yeah, you could have gone through the whole draw and offered me it, pretty much anybody, and I wouldn't have put Puig ahead of many people in the draw as players that I would pick to go all the way. And also, when you watch some of those matches, the tennis she was playing and the, the spirit she showed to, to come through difficult moments, and even... Even in the final against Angelique Kerber, when she's she looks like she's going to win it in straight sets, and then it goes three, and then she goes five love up, and then the last two games mm. seem to just take forever. I mean, she she gets broken back once, and then she's she's trying to get over the line, and and she has four, and they 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 flash it up on the screen, gold medal point. <laughs> I mean that has something a bit extra on it, doesn't it? And um, and she has four of those. Kerber has six breakback points, uh, and it just seems to go. Are you wondering? Is there a point where we've seen it in the past where a certain player just can't play tennis anymore under those circumstances? We we saw it with Novotna, the speed with which it went against her in '93 when we were reliving that that Wimbledon, and and with a within a flash, you know that massive lead she had over Graf had gone, and and I did it went through my mind even watching it back. Are we sure she wins this? Because because I mean she looks like she's going to struggle to get the serve over the net in a minute, but she just held holds firm, um, wins it, and the look on her face. There's there's a one moment that stays with me when she receives the medal, and she holds it in the palm of her hand while it's around her neck, just just the medal, and looks down at it, and her face just crumples in in tears and emotion because she's looking for the first time at the gold she has just won. Oh, it was something else. Mm. And even the moment when when she finally won, she drops her racket... And it's it's such a release for her because I, I think of her as quite an emotional player. But I, I maybe I have that image in, in my mind because solely of that moment, because it's so defining of her career. But actually, I was watching some of the some of the highlights like you, David. And for most of the match, she's so focused, so concentrated. She's in this bubble. She's hitting she's hitting through the nerves that she might be feeling. And she isn't that sort of outward with her emotions and then it all just pours out of her in this one great big release when she finally wins and I mean let's not forget Kerber in 2016 was tough as nails and you know she'd already won the Australian Open beating Serena in the final she'd had a great performance in the Wimbledon final against Serena she took some beating actually Kerber and Monica Puig had to go out there and I think she hit over 50 winners in the 54. final. 54. 54 winners. I mean, talk about someone just rising to an occasion and, and imposing her own game on a match. And, and literally, you can you kind of just think of this medal as kind of dangling there. And she went out there and grabbed it. She also married the power with consistency, I noticed, because... I thought that was going Kirby, to be another not... proposal story. <laughs> <laughs> you're not, you're not going to be able to just blast your way through Kerber with one 
shot mm. knockout power are you you have to come up with combinations because of her ability to absorb power and i noticed a number of rallies where she's hitting full velocity middles backhands cross court into the corner and it comes back and then she's got to do it again and she was still winning rallies that way i i, I mean if you could bottle the the form she found that week and produce it half a dozen times a year, you know, you'd be looking at a multiple mm. Grand Slam champion. Mm. And yet she has never uh, reached a Grand Slam quarterfinal still. You know, it, mm. it, it. of course, we've seen that week what she's capable of. She's just been unable to, to produce it, not even consistently. She's not been able to produce it again. But she will always have that Olympics. And look, there's, there's plenty of career ahead of her. Who knows what will what will happen in the future? But she will always have Olympic gold, which is obviously still something that she she thinks about often. And she has to because because presumably of how often she's asked about it. And I, I spoke to her. This was a few months ago now, actually. This was one of the first interviews we did for, for Olympics Relived, uh, for, for Tennis Relived, Um but yeah, I started off by asking her exactly how often and how how frequently in conversation uh, that Olympic gold comes up. It, it wiggles its way into every single conversation because it was just the most surreal moment I've ever had in my career. And just something coming about like that, it was just kind of like, boom. Um, I mean, I was ranked 34 in the world at the time. Not a favorite at all when it came to this and then all of a sudden just walking away with the gold medal and you're just like my life has changed and it has changed for the better for sure does it still feel surreal when you think back it to does. that week yeah i mean i look at the gold medal sometimes i'm like I, I can't believe this happened and it's nice i mean i i try and look at it as often as possible to try and relive those memories. I watched the final several times. I still get nervous, even though I know the outcome, my hands start sweating and just watching it, my heart rate spikes. And it's just all that adrenaline and all the emotions. You're trying to relive the moment and trying to just kind of remember the sensations that were going through your body at the time, but it's, it's almost impossible to replicate. Where do you keep the medal? I keep it here at my parents' house. As you can see, they're they're very proud. They have all of my brother and my accomplishments up on their on their walls, um, and so they keep it here. Um, I know they keep it very safe, um, and I just like to have it here. My parents were such a huge part of the process of me becoming who I am today. That it's something that I definitely want to share with them every single day. You're obviously the the first gold medalist from your country, the first female medalist of of any kind. I I I read some stuff about just the significance of that moment in your country, the fact that there was no crime that day, the streets were empty because yes. everybody was watching you. Can you try and sum up what that victory meant for your country and sort of what you've learned about that over the past few years? Well, it meant everything and and the most impressive thing for me was just watching all the videos of the people after I had initially gotten the medal and I was able to kind of like wind down and I got back to my room at like midnight that night and just started responding to all the messages of everybody who had sent me congratulations. And then just watching the reactions of the people in Puerto Rico and just how excited they were and how alive with emotion and just living that experience to the max was really cool. 
and being able to go to Puerto Rico um, maybe a week later and celebrate with everybody and just seeing how much it really meant to them. I think that um, Puerto Ricans, we come from such a small island and we want the world to know where Puerto Rico is and who we are as people. Um, we're definitely very bubbly, very kind, uh, generous people. Um, if you go to Puerto Rico, you're going to feel like you're you're within family, and that's that's just what it is. And uh, I'm very proud of my roots, and I'm very proud of, of being able to call myself a Puerto Rican. Is, is it correct that you were asked about being the flag bearer for for Tokyo in 2016? I haven't, I haven't officially been asked. <laughs> it's a request that I would put in for sure. Because I remember for the Rio Olympics, um, our flag bearer was our judo um, silver medalist in the London Olympics. And just seeing how excited he was to carry out the flag, us as Puerto Ricans were very patriotic. And that would just be a surreal experience. I think I would probably cry walking out into the Olympic ceremony, opening ceremonies, carrying the flag because... That whole experience, just walk, walking out into that stadium, the people cheering, um, just being able to just see all of the athletes there as one, and we're all there for the same reason. It's just, it gives me goosebumps because I just kind of remember um, walking out into that Olympic uh, stadium in Rio and just being like, wow. Is that feeling part of what inspired you to play the kind of tennis that you played because you just it was so gutsy you just went for everything and it was like you couldn't miss it was like you were inspired by something I I honestly don't know what came over me that week um I was just enjoying my time there I mean I didn't put any pressure on myself to win I obviously didn't count myself as a favorite in any way um and I think the thing was just that disconnect of not really putting any pressure on myself to win and just enjoying every single moment that I was out there on the court because I never knew if I was going to be able to compete at any Olympus again. I mean, you saw what happened this year with Corona. You, everything is suddenly suspended. So I was like, okay, if this is the last Olympic games that I'm ever going to play, I'm not going to be here hating life. Like I just want to live up the experience and soak it all in and just be like, I'm an Olympian and that was good enough for me. And I think that, took all the pressure off of my shoulders and I was able to just do what I do best, just play and just have fun. Before that tournament, because there is still, for whatever reason, there is still some debate about tennis in the Olympics, whether it's the pinnacle of the sport, what that means for the Olympic movement, etc. Before that week in 2016, where would you have ranked the Olympics in terms of importance or significance for you? For me, it's number one. I... I put it above a grand slam because for me, it's so rare. I mean, it's once every four years and we have the opportunity to win a grand slam four times every year. So to win something that rare and to be in that group of people who have a, an Olympic medal, it's huge. And you just see all of the athletes. I mean, when I won my medal the next day I had to do press. So I needed to walk uh, to my van outside of the village and I was walking with a medal and all the athletes are just like staring at this thing, just hungry for it. And it's just something that you can't take away from any Olympian, just having a medal because that's, that's what they're there for. And the fact that I walked away with the gold medal, which is like the biggest thing ever, um, was just amazing. And 
definitely for me, I would love to win Grand Slams and, and all of that. But that was the best thing that ever happened in my life. I would be so happy because just the joy and the emotion of the whole moment and not just for me, but for Puerto Rico, it was huge. Given how special and unique that experience is, was it difficult at all to go back to the grind of the tour? The week in, week out. Yeah, it was tough. It was very tough because I asked a lot. I mean, a lot of people asked me after, um, so what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I have to get back to the tour. I need to go back. I have the U.S. Open in two and a half weeks. They're like, you're not done? I said, no, this is what tennis is. I mean, tournament after tournament after tournament. So, I mean, it was a tough adjustment period because this is the biggest thing that I've ever done. So um, having to deal with all the media, and I've dealt with media before, but this was like double the media that I've ever been able to do in, 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 in my career. More interviews, more talk shows, um, going to meet with important people, just being in Puerto Rico and, and all of the commitments that I needed to do, photo shoots, um, commercials, everything. It was exhausting. It was really hard to make that adjustment. And then obviously um, trying to put practice in there and try and shift the focus back to being like locked in. It was very difficult. And I just think that, you know, I'm glad that all of that experience came my way at once so I can learn so that if something else happens like this, hopefully, you know, one day I can win a grand slam and then things like these happen again. I think I know how to manage that situation a little bit better. My team knows how to deal with it a little bit better. We've all gotten smarter um, on how to do things, but it's an experience that you just can't rewrite. And even though it was chaotic and it was crazy and you just like here, there, everywhere, those experiences definitely leave an impact and leave a mark in your in your mind, just kind of like, wow, that was that was crazy. Now I should say that at the time that I did that interview, I wasn't aware of the Gigi Fernandez story. So I didn't I didn't put that to her and obviously I I regret that now and I, I wish I could ask her, her her feelings on that. Um, I also wasn't in the swing of Olympics interviews, so I didn't ask her whether she stayed in the village. I assume she did, um, but I didn't. Get, I, I like. I've I've enjoyed getting the Olympic Village goss uh, from people, but hey, it was still really nice to hear her recollections. And and another thing I found out recently about Monica Puig is that her dog is called Rio. Strongly approve. Mm. I mean, that just shows, I suppose, <laughs> how. Uh, how much she thinks about this, you know, as you said, this kind of moment in time in uh, in her career. But I think she's also talked about how, as you said, as you started the interview, how she does have to talk about this a lot. And that must be, yes, a reminder of what she achieved, but also a reminder of that she hasn't done it again or done anything of of such significance since. And I think she she's spoken about feeling feeling quite low, I think, in the years after the Olympics and not having that focal point in her life and going right from the top to the bottom, this kind of whiplash, I think, was the word she used to describe it. And I can imagine that it's been a struggle to find the drive again after after an experience like that because it's not, it wasn't just winning the Olympics. As she talked about there, it was, it was so much more important for her country than winning a medal in the Olympics might have been for other 
tennis players who have had their one moment at the Olympics. This was this was not only a big deal for her, but also a massive, massive deal for her country. And I think they, I think as much, as great as that was, I I get the sense that it also slightly weighed on her. Mm. One of the uh, one of the other questions that Catherine asked her, that we we didn't feature there because the answer didn't reveal that much. Was do you go onto the court now? and try to recapture what you felt there in order to play that sort of tennis again. And I've heard people ask that of Ian Poulter, the golfer, whether he can mm. grasp what he does at the Ryder Cup at the major tournaments, which he's never won. He's been this incredible Ryder Cup player. And, and he, he has tried to do that and not really managed to succeed. And she says that, I, I no, I don't. I mean, every week's different. And I just, I guess you just, maybe you just can't. Maybe it's not possible. Just on the subject of the the representing Puerto Rico thing, which I, you know, I I asked her about the importance of that to her, but I didn't put the Gigi Fernandez stuff. But I know Gigi Fernandez, she was she was very generous towards Monica Week. It's obviously not a personal thing, but she also did kind of say, "Look, if if we are getting down to the nuts and bolts of it, I am more Puerto Rican than than Monica Puig." So I just wanted to read out these quotes from from Puig on representing. Puerto Rico she said I've always been 100% loyal I still have family in Puerto Rico and I've gone back quite a lot it's my favorite place to go when I just want to go to the beach or just see family that island has given me so much so much love and support throughout my whole career and I just owe this to them so it meant a lot to her achieving that for for her country even though she 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 doesn't live there and she she lives in the states and kind of as as I was discussing with Gigi Fernandez, you can you can be more than one thing. Nationality isn't necessarily binary. So um, it was an extraordinarily romantic week and story for, for Monica Puig and Puerto Rico. In the doubles, the women's doubles, Serena and Venus Williams were the two-time defending champions and number one seeds, but they lost in the first round to Lucy Safarova and Barbora Stritzova. Um, that ended a 15-match winning streak in women's doubles at the Olympics for the Williams sisters, and it was their first ever loss together in Olympic competition. That stat is ridiculous. Um it ended up being the Russian duo over Katerina Makarova and Elena Vesnina, RIP to that partnership. It didn't end well, did it? Uh, that won the gold medal. They defeated Bashinsky and Hingis, 6-4, 6-4 in the finals. And uh, Hingis had been going for the career Golden Slam in doubles. So that must have been heartbreaking for her. But I remember Makarova-Vesnina split shortly after that gold, didn't they? They were such a successful pairing um, and it ended in, again, I don't think we quite know the circumstances, but it didn't seem to be a, a didn't seem to be a conscious uncoupling. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bet you get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello Tennis Podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. So moving on to the men's event, which saw Andy Murray become the first ever man or woman to defend an Olympic title. He defeated Juan Martín del Potro, who was then ranked 141 in the world after having a torrid time with injury. 7-5, 4-6, 6-2, 7-5 in the gold medal match. It was a four-hour, two-minute match. Um, and after that, after that effort and those that, that silver medal... Del Potro remained ranked 141 in the world because there were no ranking points on offer. I can't quite believe that. Uh, it took yeah. Andy Murray's winning streak to 18 matches. That was ended after 22 matches by Marin Cilic in the Cincinnati final. It still boggles my mind that the day after winning Golden Rio, Andy Murray boarded a, a private jet to, to Cincinnati and played there. I mean, that. when I look back on that 2016 year for Andy Murray... I see the highs, the wonderful, wonderful highs, but I also get this visual of his hip wearing down. You know, that it was, it was his hip canister was depleting with every match, wasn't it? Um, well, he, and he was prepared to basically do whatever it took that year. He put his body on the line in a way that wasn't just a figure of speech. He, he was probably pushing it too far um, but he was prepared to do it at the time in the pursuit of all those goals and Wimbledon title Olympic title and I and I particularly noted what you wrote for us when you were researching this Catherine about how there was no there were no ranking points on offer at the Olympics that here's the guy who ended up finishing world number one in the final match of the tennis year and this despite Novak Djokovic having had an incredible first half of the year winning two Grand Slam titles and he overhauled him whilst winning Olympic games that actually gave him zero points so just an amazing achievement thereafter but that's what I love about this triumph at the Olympics. You saw how raw it was for him, for Del Potro, um, as they were 
dueling for that gold medal and ranking points, money, all irrelevant, all completely irrelevant. And Murray even posted, I think, yesterday on, on his social media that carrying the flag for him was the proudest moment of his career. And I just think it sums it up, really. There's a there's a slightly eerie foreshadowing to, to that final match because the story from Andy Murray's perspective was him reaching, it felt like, and it turned out to be the case, that he was nearing the pinnacle of his career. And the story on the other end of the court was Juan Martín del Potro, who one feared had reached the pinnacle of his career many years before and was just desperately trying to come back and recapture moments of of his past glory. As I say, he was ranked 141 in the world at the time. And fast forward four years, um, and it's Andy Murray that's been through a del Potro-like injury experience over the past the past Olympic cycle. And there are some... There were some quotes from from Murray after that match that that again have quite an eerie feel to them. First of all, on on becoming the first ever player to win back to back singles golds, he said the fact that it hasn't been done before obviously shows that it's very hard. He said, "I'm very proud to have been the first one to have done that." It hasn't obviously been easy because a lot can happen in four years, especially for tennis players. We have so many events. Since London, I had back surgery as well. So many things So many things can change. My ranking dropped a lot during that period and I've gone through some tough times on the court as well. I'm happy that I'm still here competing for the biggest events. I'll try and keep going. Who knows about Tokyo 2020? But if I'm still playing in four years when I'm 33, I don't imagine I'll be playing the same level as now. So I'll try and enjoy tonight's win. Wow. Yeah. And <laughs> he enjoyed the win by flying to Cincinnati. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What what better way to celebrate going to Cincinnati? Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I mean, well, I mean, Del Potro's been on his own additional extra injury journey over the course of the the past couple of years and who knows this period might end up being being good for them both um but yeah there's no shortage of sort of storylines surrounding both those players that competed for gold in in rio that uh, that final between the two of them caught the imagination of certainly everybody in this country in a way that i don't think any of the other Olympic matches that I'd seen did so because whilst him winning in London was obviously huge there was so much going on in London at the games generally that it was one of many whereas it just felt like everything stopped in the UK that day that he played Del Potro I think it was on on at a good time of the day I think it was one you could dip in and out of because it was so long and it was there was a story on both sides of the net because Del Potro had got enormous support from the Brazilian crowd, which was a surprise, really, um, given that he's an Argentine. Do, but do, do you think he did have the Brazilian support? I'm not sure. I think a lot of Brazilians were supporting Murray. There was a lot of Argentine support in, in, in the crowd. Well, I, I got the sense that he was getting great support at the time. My impression was that there was a lot of Argentine support. And in a way, Del Potro won over... <laughs> the, that's that was mine too and, and that's what he does to you isn't it mm. i mean you know even even when he lost to to federer in 1917 four years earlier the the hug he gives federer kind of win, kind of wins federer over you know mm. he, he's almost saying to roger it's all right it's all right you deserve it but oh i can't believe this you know he, he, everything about it um 
is 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 special really um it was it was amazing and it, he I, I i even as a british person watching that match where being british you kind of want andy murray to win gold but how can you want del potro to lose that's how he makes you feel mm. you can't face him losing and yeah there was it was just this final with incredible stories on both sides and both both men i think are really liked by the general sporting and tennis community and i always felt that for, i was pleased for murray that he managed to carve out this little olympic niche in a way and kind of achieve something that he knows Nadal, Federer and Djokovic, who inevitably his career is so tied up with and compared against. But, you know, it's just something that he has that they will never has, have, the fact that he's got two Olympic gold medals in singles back to back. And it was also a period where he f- he felt like probably the best player in the world at the time. I know, I know Djokovic had, you know, had that incredible start to the year that you referenced, David, but Murray had won Wimbledon and Djokovic was, it was kind of the start of his downward spiral. And it felt like an event that Murray was certainly among the favourites at and he went out and he won it and then he carried it through to the rest of the season. And then on the other hand, you had Del Potro, who, as you said, had emerged from the kind of wilderness. I remember so specifically the start of 2016, he came back in Delray Beach he was ranked about a thousand in the world, and he had no backhand at all. I mean, he just he just had a slice. He he wouldn't even put his left hand on the racket. By the time he'd got to Rio, I think he'd beaten Wawrinka at Wimbledon. He'd had a couple of results, but by the time he got to Rio, he was a force again. And what I say there about Del Potro winning over a crowd. I always think of tennis as su- such a lonely sport, and there are there are. And Del Potro will have had so many lonely moments, I feel like, in his career when he's been out injured and watching the tour go on without him. And there are some players who look who feel lonely on the court because they can't galvanise the crowd or they don't have that kind of spirit. But Del Potro is never lonely when he's on the tennis court because he just has this this wave of support behind him and it's it's like he's playing with his soul out there and it's a different energy when del potro is on the court and i think particularly when he's competing for argentina he he carried this through and he went on to help argentina win the davis cup in in, in 2016 and i just remember feeling although he didn't get the gold he'd still earned something he'd still earned for his country it didn't really matter anymore that he didn't win the gold well, shall I read you a segment of the write-up from the New York Times after that men's final? It said, Andy Murray of Britain put a brighter shine on his finest tennis season by winning his second straight Olympic gold medals in singles on Sunday night. But surely Juan Martín del Potro of Argentina deserves something more precious than silver. It won't be ranking points or prize money. This Olympic tennis tournament offered neither but Del Potro gave it his all just the same, providing start-to-finish entertainment and sentimental resonance as he continued his comeback from three surgeries on his left wrist. I fought to my last fingernail, he said. The crowds made me run all the time. More than the colour of the medal, I'll remember the whole experience. This This is only the reward, but it's not what I'll keep with me. 
that's inside. Those were the words I was trying to find. Yeah. Yeah, that that energy that Del Potro has is it's an Olympic energy in spirit, isn't it? It's such synergy with what the Olympics is all about. And that was also encapsulated in his semi-final win over Nadal, which, mm. I mean, I consider that to be one of the best tennis matches I've ever seen. I mean, I talk about Del Potro playing with his soul. Nadal is is the same in so many ways. And there is a... There is a moment in the third set of that semi-final where it is the best camera work and directing of a tennis match I have ever seen. When Nadal does a running, sidestepping fist pump and the camera gets just behind him and you see the backdrop of the crowd going mental in the background and I mean literally he sidesteps doing a fist pump from the net to the baseline Nadal and then he and then he breaks on the next point with a forehand winner up the line and it's just one of my favorite sequences of tennis ever and still Del Potro managed to win that match despite Nadal playing like that that's that's what says everything, really, because if you think back to the Davis Cup in Spain, my view had always been Nadal is an awesome player, stick a Spanish flag with him, and I'm not sure he's actually beatable mm. if he's fully fit. And and I know he wasn't fully fit, was he really, at that time, but he was playing well. He would have beaten pretty much anybody, and Del Potro just wasn't letting him have it. And he was pretty broken for the uh, for the bronze medal match. He lost out to to Kei Nishikori, and that was a big deal for for Nishikori to um, to be on the podium. First Japanese player to win an Olympic tennis medal since 1920. I remember that podium so clearly. I was sobbing. I was I, sobbing. I thought you were going to say I remember 1920 there. From that. <laughs> <laughs> um. It was late at night here, wasn't it? And Andy Murray sung along with the the British mm. national anthem, and Del Potro was emotional. And the Shikori even looked emotional. It was just oh, all the feels. That is a big deal for Nishikori having having that bronze medal. I've probably overlooked that actually, mm. to be honest. When I think of Nishikori's mm. career and the fact that he beat Nadal to do it. Mm. Um, Having just, he, just lost to Murray in, in a really good semi-final. Um, and a great spell of his career, actually. That was when he went on to beat Andy Murray in the US Open that year. In the doubles, the defending champions, the Bryans, withdrew. Uh, they were another another couple that withdrew uh, due to the Zika virus. Uh, French pairing Pierre Rugeber and Nicolas Mayou, they were the top seeds. Oh, how much they would love to have an Olympic gold. Oh, They're going for the golden slam. Oh, oh yeah, I can get behind that. Mm. Um, they're the top seeds. They lost in the first round to Cabal and Farah. I mean, it's a tough draw. That is a tough, tough draw, but still heartbreaking for them. Uh, and it, as you said, David, it was Mark Lopez and Rafael Nadal that won the gold medal. They beat Florin Magea and uh, Horia Takao in the final 6-2, 3-6, 6-4. And that was just 
those scenes they're they're best mates aren't they Mark Lopez and and Nadal and those scenes were just glorious when they won gold and in the mixed um it was an all-american mixed doubles final Bethany Matek Sands and Jack Sock defeated Venus Williams and Rajiv Ram 6-7-6-1-10-7 um, it was Jack Sock's second medal in Rio because he won a bronze in the men's doubles with Steve Johnson. So there you go. And there was another, not in terms of, of medals or end results, but there was there was one big moment at that tournament that I think we probably all remember very vividly that we haven't talked about yet. And that came, I think, in the very first round, possibly even on the very first day of Olympic competition, uh, Olympic tennis competition. And that was the loss of Novak Djokovic to Juan Martín del Potro. Now, obviously, <laughs> like with that, men's doubles that is a horrible draw for Djokovic I remember when that draw came out and just the the sharp intakes of breath and the sense of anticipation um because there was a lot of lot of weight on that Olympics for Novak Djokovic and he he didn't make any secret of the fact that he wanted it and of course he ended up losing to Del Potro and and leaving the court in tears and it was such a visually iconic moment that um and David's been speaking to to Chris Clary who's covered every single Olympics, it turns out, since 1988. Um, And in terms of Rio and covering that one, that was a moment that that stuck out for Chris as well. I've never seen him look like that. And I've covered him since the beginning, pretty much. Um, He just looked completely devastated. Um, Eyes were kind of vacant. But to his credit, he stood there and he answered the questions and he just... He didn't hide the pain. I mean, he was just, you know, this is, I forget exactly what he said, but I know the tone of his voice and the, uh, and his words were, were spare, but very powerful. And you could just sense how much it had knocked out of him. So that, I guess for me, you think about Olympics and all that, the long um, road to credibility in some ways for it. To me, the credibility comes when a player loses almost as much as when they win. And you see what it means to them when they lose. And that right there was pretty, uh, pretty telling. Del, Del Potro was an extraordinary story that Olympics, wasn't it? Wasn't he? I mean, given what he'd been through. Yeah, yeah he, and as, as you've seen at times, I mean, Del Potro's not in the category of a of a Masu or or Monica Puig um, or people like that who sort of crest for the one tournament. I see he's a wonderful player and will go into the Hall of Fame, I think. Um, but it's just uh, he managed to peak at the right time, and I think he was fresh at the right time, and he had. Played very little tennis again at that stage, and so it was uh, it was an extraordinary run for him, and playing in front of a lot of his own fans because there were quite a, quite a number of uh, Argentine fans who were there for the mm. Olympics. What what did you make of that Monica Puig story? Did you could you see it coming as it was going along? No, no. I mean, you could see that she was playing well and she was in a zone, and and she was just getting great rhythm from the baseline and playing with nothing to lose, and was inspired by by her flag and. And uh, and all of that, and she's always run on Puerto Rico. It's been a big thing for her. You know, it's it's a it's a little bit of a limbo situation for some athletes because of the U.S. connection to Puerto Rico. Uh, but she really uh, has always taken it to heart and played her best tennis in those situations. And and she she rose. But I never thought she'd get past what she got past uh, to win. And and I think um, if you want to play uh, a sports ode to joy, watch her after she wins the final. <laughs> <laughs> Those moments were pretty, pretty extraordinary, and I think she was, in some ways, emerging from a some sort of fever dream there. 
you know, yeah. that she kind of coming out of her bubble finally. And she was in a beautiful place there for, for 10 days. You, you mentioned the, the rocky road of the, of tennis within the Olympics. What, what is your view of tennis in the Olympics? Do, does it have a place? You know, my, by my old standards, David, I would, I would say no, because my old standard used to be Olympics should be the summit for any athlete who wins. It should be the summit moment. It should be the defining moment of them. Not Maybe not defining, but it should be the biggest moment in their career and the biggest title they can win. Undeniably, that's not true for most tennis players winning the Olympics. However, the way the Olympics has gone, that's not true for a lot of people. I mean, NBA players are there now playing. You've had um, professional golfers are now involved. So the idea of the summit, I think, is gone now. And in that sort of um, structure and that kind of situation, I think tennis definitely has its place. And unlike a lot of these sports, it was there very early on. You know, the singles was part of the original uh, men's singles anyway was part of the original modern Olympics in 1896. Women came in in 1900, so it's something where I think um, it has the history. Philippe Chatrier, the ITF president, who was instrumental in getting it back in the games, you know, played that card obviously. But I was initially resistant because I just felt like it wasn't tennis players already had so much that they had to to show their talents and so many things to win. And it was already a, a pretty overstuffed calendar. But I, I think it started to change for me when I saw what it meant to, uh, to Davenport and to Agassi in 96, um, particularly Agassi. And I think Andre probably did a lot to bring it to the players' attention too and to see how much it could mean to them and their careers. And he never stopped talking about it afterward, really. Neither did Lindsay. So those both were, I think, pivotal moments for the, the sports credibility among the player population. And then over time, I just think it's the, it's, it's the emotions that it generates among the players. Um, and I, I guarantee you that um, when these players look back on their careers, these great players like the Nadals and, and the Federers and Novak for reasons that might be sad or might be happy in the end, they'll remember the Olympics. And there's got an awful lot of content for them to sift through. And I think the Olympics will be in that group. And therefore, if it matters to them to that degree, to most of them anyway, then it should matter to us. If we're eventually calculating the greatest of all time and they're all very very similar on grand slam totals how important is the olympics um you know i I think it is i think it's a significant uh tiebreaker if you will i don't i don't think it it builds the body of work entirely i think the body of work is week to week and grand slam season to season and number one ranking weeks and also just the overall impact on the the health and well-being of tennis which is a good argument for someone like federer and nadal at this point um, but I think, um, once you get down to the more, the details, it should weigh heavily in the details. And I think something like, you know, Andy Murray having one, two back-to-back singles titles, the only person to do that, that's, that lifts Andy to a higher category than a guy like Stan Bavrinka, um, who's won the same number of Grand Slam singles titles. Um, and I think you take somebody like, uh, Rafa, who has won singles and doubles gold, um, and if he and Roger end up on equal footing in some ways, that should weigh. I mean, Roger won a doubles goal, but has never gotten across the line in singles. And Novak, for now, is a bronze medalist in singles, nothing more. And so that's those are. I think those should count. But I think it counts more in the details than in the the real weight of the matter. If if we go back over the tennis that you've seen at the Olympics over the years, and you've covered a lot of them now, what stands out the most? Have you got a personal highlight? <laughs> Well, I think the most extraordinary thing I saw um, 
to be honest, and obviously it does all run together, but if I think back in, in a flash and go, well, what was the thing that just kind of blew me away? It was how amazing Serena was in 2012 in London. Um, I mean, <laughs> that was probably peak Serena, frankly. Um, she had just gotten through winning Wimbledon, having come out of a horrible French Open, losing in the first round to Rosano, and then kind of getting advice from Patrick Moore Tuglu for the first time, getting that new belief. And she just came into those Olympics in the stratosphere and she stayed there. And it was just remarkable to watch. It wasn't very suspenseful. <laughs> That's for sure. But as, but as a feat of athletic achievement, it was certainly, uh, it was certainly, I think at the top. Now, if you look to talk about just the matches, I, I the Wimbledon Olympics in general was extraordinary. And I think the, you know, the Murray situation, winning the gold was, uh, you can't forget that, particularly because Federer had obviously beaten him at Wimbledon just before. So just the atmosphere in there that day and that whole approach was, was extraordinary. And, uh, and I think also just out of body, as I'm sure you've discussed on the podcast, is because you're, you're in this place that's so familiar and yet it looks so different and feels so different and had a little bit of People's Monday feel to it for sure, but just the whole way it was wrapped up looked different. And to see Murray break through there, but not yet having broken through at the the one he wanted most was, you know, subtly ironic for sure. We on the podcast, the three of us, none of us have ever covered an Olympics. What what is it like as somebody who covers other events and obviously is a regular on the tennis scene? What what is it like to cover the Olympics? You know, it, it feels it feels smaller time in some ways. It feels it feels uh, a little more intimate. And, um, but it feels a bit like you've just sort of reshuffled the cards and you're playing a, a different sort of hand of Jim Rummy, if you will, you know, cause it, the cards are sort of the same. I mean, you do see some people that are, you know, from outside the box coming in on the ITF wild cards and, and you see, you know, certain nations that would normally have dozens of players in the field only get a handful because of the restrictions on national representation. But, you know, it's more, the players are just sort of giddy about the difference of it all and, and the stories they're telling are different too, um, because they're talking about the Olympic Village and and getting together with athletes that are where they're not the focus. And I remember, you know, even Nadal and Federer talking about this at Olympics Pass, where that's the fun part for them. You know, they're even though they're getting hounded for autographs because they're superstars, they're also looking around and going, "Ooh, there's Usain Bolt," or "Look over there," you know, that's that's um, Michael Phelps or whatever it is. So those things are it's fun to see them in that situation, and, and it makes it feel. Um, yeah, really, really different, I would say. And the mixed zone is different, too, even though that exists at certain um, other tournaments as a media member. To see a, a big, big match and people coming through the mixed zone afterward, often in open-air situations where usually a lot of tennis interviewing happens behind closed doors and close rooms. and So there's, it's, it's kind of an openness and a freshness to it all, I would say. But, but above all, it's just that tennis, of course – as Federer, when he was skipping Davis Cup for the last many years, always said, hey, I represent Switzerland every week. But not like that, they don't. Um, and Davis Cup, too, because of the fact that it's a team is different. Maybe Olympics should be a team event, I don't know. But the fact that it's an individual playing for his nation or her nation gives it that special uh, vibe. And whenever the players in tennis are feeling kind of invigorated and fresh, it's good for the media because you get better material and they're more eager to talk to us and it's a new set of topics and all that you can feel. You, you must have covered all sorts of stories and you've seen some incredible feats and you must have covered some 
bizarre things at the Olympics over the years. What sticks out? Well, to be honest, I think I probably, I mean, I've covered 15 Olympics. So for me, yeah, just I have trouble remembering yesterday, yesterday sometimes, much less 15 Olympics. <laughs> but I, I think of all the things, probably the strangest thing in some ways was I think it didn't even happen on the right site. I mean, I was basically covering the Olympics in Athens, which is the cradle of the ancient Olympics and the modern Olympics. And um, I had this crazy but genius idea to have the, the shot put in the original location of the Olympics in, in Olympia. So we were all in Athens, long bus ride across the hills, and we all got up, you know, in the middle of the night, if I remember, and and drove through the night to get to this site um, <laughs> where they had set up in this ancient Olympic ruins a shot put competition. And so we were there all day, you know, watching them put the shot in the middle of the original, you know, sort of arenas of the Olympics with the busts and crumbling structures around us and intense heat and crickets chirping. And it was just really a, a very weird and wondrous day made less wondrous by the fact that a number of the medalists ended up testing positive later on. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, perhaps that's the most apt of all things to have happened, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. It's, uh... I mean, I know this is an impossible question as in really, but I mean, there's no right or wrong answer to it, but is there, is there an Olympic achievement that you've witnessed that, that in any sport that stands out the most for you? Well, I mean, it depends what you're talking about. If you're talking about um, just, you know, numerical achievement, I mean, Phelps doing what he's done with the multiple gold medals and the same Olympics and just what's required of him in terms of, the number of races, even though swimming races tend to resemble each other sometimes, um, and the distances are, are close enough to go, why are they having a 100 and a 200 meters? You know, why can't they just have one? But nonetheless, the way he's backed that up and pulled that off was extraordinary to watch the planning and everything else. And to be there for bolt-breaking world records um, in Beijing was unbelievable, too, just because the atmosphere in the stadium and it was fresh for him. But, you know, it's really sort of the human stories that stand out. I mean, what I remember was – really well it was 1996 in Atlanta it was uh, there was a gymnast from Switzerland named Li Donghua who was uh, grew up in China in the intensely communist era um, he was kind of sidelined blackballed by the Chinese Gymnastics Federation because a world-class gymnast ended up falling in love with a Swiss woman he met in the Tiananmen Square moved to Switzerland and spent five years unable to really do anything at all so kind of coach in this gym because he had to wait for his nationality it's a very modest gym. And I went and did a story on him because he had started to come back. And the guy ended up winning the gold medal in the, uh, in the pommel horse at the Olympics in Atlanta. And it's just to see and see what he had been through to get to that point. Basically, he had just been completely anonymous and sidelined for all this time and to kind of in an artisanal way to beat the athletes who were backed by the government that he'd left behind and to see what it meant to him and his wife at the time the Swiss woman he'd met, whose name was Esperanza, which means hope in Spanish. It was just, uh, I was young enough to really be unjaded and incredibly touched by that. And I still am thinking about what, what, what they went through to get there to that moment and how the odds were against them. Oh, that's lovely. Wow. Um, f final one, just in terms of 
the logistics of working at these events and, and, and what they bring as well. I mean, sometimes in tennis, I think, well, I love the Italian Open in Rome, but I hate working there because it's so difficult because the, the organization isn't always what you want it to be. What, what do you think is the, was the best Olympics that you covered in terms of which one do you think back and uh, with the most affection on? Hey, I mean, to be honest, you know, Sydney was great. Just because of the vibe and the and the Aussies' natural love of sport, as you know so well from the Australian Open, that was tremendous. But it was quite scattered uh, out and around. Um, London was, I thought, extraordinary as well. Thought very well run, and ultimately, and they did a heck of a job. And in, in terms of the locations and the venues, it was extraordinary. But but the one I really, to be honest, that spoke to me the most was probably in um, at least Summer Olympics wise was. Uh, Oddly enough, Athens, even though I know Athens was not the best organized, I would say, but just in terms of the power of the setting, all the history there was to tap into as a journalist, when you're writing about the marathon, where they ran <laughs> the marathon in the country initially, and, and to be there for just the, uh, the connection between the past and the present was really, really powerful there. And so I think that's the one that uh, I think gets underrated in memory by people, the the games in 2004 in Athens. And also, you know, the sad thing about that, of course, is that they overspent and overorganized and ended up, you know, costing themselves a lot of money down the road and there are a lot of white elephants. But they stretched themselves to the limit there to put on a show because it meant a lot to their culture to show they could do it. Was it a great idea in retrospect? That's for them to say. But the moment itself was was really something. He gives such a great sense, Chris Clary, doesn't he, of, of the weight of it all. Um, and the history um, and the significance um, of of Olympic moments or, or any moments really, but yeah, just the weight of everything. Um, I mean, he's got a great way with words, and that's such a such a good way to sort of unify and look back on our whole Olympics relived experience. Really, I mean, doesn't have to rub it in that he's covered every single Olympics. That's that's a bit bit of a <laughs> bit of a blow you're like yeah none of us have ever covered olympics chris but you've covered all of them so how's that answer bloody great obviously um yeah i mean i I did find his answer about um olympics uh, tennis's place in the olympics very interesting because i don't know i I don't know how you both see it but it's discussed as a fixed thing I suppose tennis's place in the Olympics and that's not how I see it personally I think the argument that it's not the pinnacle of the sport is fading I think there are some players for whom it would be the pinnacle of the sport okay perhaps not the majority but a heck of a lot more than there would have been 10 years ago even more than there would have been 20 years ago and a shovel load more than there would have been in 1988 and I think give it even more time and I think it is possible that you could hear the majority of tennis players talk about Olympic gold as the pinnacle of the sport or certainly on an equal footing with with the Grand Slams and I do think there are a lot already that would put it on an equal footing with the Grand Slams. I think tennis's place in the Olympics is evolving still. Mm. And I think that line about it not automatically being the pinnacle is certainly used by 
a lot of people, I think, outside of tennis who might not think that tennis should be in the Olympics, that would be the line that they would go to to justify that reasoning. And I think I think Chris makes a very good point about how Agassi helped push the Olympics. You know, he didn't he say that winning a slam is the best thing you can do in tennis, but winning an Olympic gold is the best thing you can do in sport. And that's such a such a neat summary mm. of the Olympics' weight and significance. And I think Venus Williams has also talked so much um, in sort of glowing terms about her medals compared to her slams. And I think the fact that it's become such an interesting element of this current men's generation in terms of Nadal, Federer and and Novak Djokovic in terms of who's got a gold you know Nadal's got one in singles and doubles Federer's got one in doubles but how much does that mean it's kind of had a it's taken on a bit of a new life I think in that respect as well as part of forming part of that conversation so yeah I do think it is evolving and I do think it's been eye-opening to speak to so many medalists as you've done and have so many of them say that it is the pinnacle of their career even when they've achieved lots of other things as well so I definitely think it's it's trending in a direction of even greater meaning Mm. I I still look at it as the icing on the cake for a tennis player whereas for the other athletes it is the cake that, that's but what, but what do you mean you view it like that? As in, that's how you view it on their behalf? Or you think that's how they should view it? It's just how I view it in the grand scheme of the texture of the sport. There, there, is a, there are a lot more things... You would look Andy Murray in the eye and tell him that's just an icing on the cake. Well, I think in his particular journey, it's different because he he needed that. Um, more, I, th- I don't think. It's but every every Olympic, as... I mean, that's what relived has taught us. Everyone's got their journey and their reason why mm. it's more than just icing on the cake. Isn't that the point? Yeah. Well, yeah, but I mean, I can only tell you how I view it. Generally speaking, I mean, there are individual cases across the board, and we've we've talked about them as we've gone along. Um, and an individual will look at the Olympics more favorably in the context of their careers than some other players there will be differences i just feel that because of the history of tennis and i think it's the same in in golf more so in golf actually because golf is more recent as an addition to to olympics um than tennis is it's it's got its key tournaments already it's key cornerstones really of of what the sport is already and the olympics adds to that it's become part of the olympics whereas track and field um swimming they they may have their world championships but everybody you ask no matter what will say the olympics is the pinnacle of their sport every single one you will not get anybody who defies that whereas that i don't think that will ever be the case in tennis I think it will be the case for some, but you, you'd never get that unity of opinion across the board. Um, so I'm personally quite happy where it is in terms of viewing it as, as this huge, wonderful thing that they can add, that you can add on to the sport. But no, I don't think it's um, the pinnacle overall for a tennis player, no. And never will be. 
Individually, yes, but for, for certain players. But I just feel like the Grand Slams have got such history of their own um, that I think that that, and because of the, they have them every year, that will tend to be what tennis players look to first of all. That's why I like what Chris says about it being a tiebreaker is is for the in terms of the the graces of all time i think he's is absolutely a worthy element to be discussing for nadal for instance he has got something over those guys um so i think that is significant in that regard eight episodes of tennis relive just icing on the cake um <laughs> should we hear from mary carillo <laughs> The temperature's <laughs> changed in this conversation. Yeah. Okay, I should uh, Catherine's face. Let, let, I mean, Mary Crillo, somebody else that can give us some perspective on tennis's evolution as an Olympic sport since 1988. Um, here she is talking first about the reintroduction of the sport in, in 88 and, and how she felt about it then. I was a bit torn in the beginning. I'm no longer torn. I love tennis in the Olympics. I was a bit torn in the beginning because I felt like we got four majors, you know, every year for players. We've got all that. Why do we have to add to the calendar? Why do we have to, why does, why do tennis players need gold? You know, why, why do they have, it didn't, there was part of me that was of that, you know, tennis isn't an Olympic sport. Uh, and there's still parts of me that believe that we can make it so that it's more of a team event at the Olympics instead of basically just a draw. And there you go. Off you go. Well, you're, you're representing Puerto Rico, Monica Puig, but you're really not. I mean, you're there for yourself. You know, there's got to be a better way. I think. I hope. Um, <laughs> but I have, I have loved, I, I think we judge the greats so much by only the number of majors they end up winning, but I think we have to include Masters, Titles One, longevity of career and Olympics. I think, I think that, that Roger, who so badly wants to win Olympic singles and Djokovic for whom a guy like that, bringing home an Olympic medal to Serbia, you know how much that means to him. Rafa only played at Rio. I mean, he, his wrist was still bad as you you might remember uh, in 2016, but he wanted to play doubles with Mark Lopez. And when those two won the gold, I mean, he did that. I mostly, I'm not going to say, he did it out of friendship, largely out of friendship. Um, and that meant he and Mark Lopez went as crazy winning the dubs as Federer and Vavrinka did in Beijing in 2008. I mean, these guys were, you know, just rolling around on the floor together and just going <laughs> crazy. I think the Olympics, I had in my head that Roger wanted to win two things this year. He wanted to win at Wimbledon, where he got so close last year. And he wanted to win the Olympics, where it's two out of three on hard courts. I can pull this off. That to me, and of course, he's got a big Japanese contract, so that would have worked well at the Tokyo Games. I mean, now that he's going to be crowding 40 next year trying to win it, and so will Serena, and who knows if Venus is going to show up. She's been a tremendous tennis Olympian. I mean, that's really screwed things up. It's, it's, uh, I, I'm, I think this will be a big deal that, uh, Tokyo has been, look, it's a big deal that all, everything was suspended, but, I think it will change the fortunes of a lot of players who were very much looking forward to the Olympics this summer. Do you have an, a, a favorite Olympic tennis memory? I love watching Monica Puig win, win in Rio. I mean, it was a real surprise and she had to play, she had tough opponents. I mean, she had to pick her way through a very difficult draw. So I love watching her do that. Andy, obviously Andy 
Murray winning <laughs> the Olympics at Wimbledon. I, I mean, that was absolutely magical. Absolutely magical. I love that as well. Um, I think I, I think tennis has really come to understand how important the Olympics is in their calendar. I really think they most of them embrace it. A lot of them, a lot of them wanted to do something, and the whole idea of being around thousands of other tremendous athletes means a lot to to tennis players as well. Go on, Mary. You can always trust Mary to bring some bring some sanity. I'm going to miss Mary and Chris sort of narrating tennis's history. Yeah, narrating our lives. I'd, I'd, I'd yeah. quite like them to do that sort of on an individual level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anything to add, Well, you don't David? think this is the end, dear. I mean, <laughs> there are no started, further then. Olympics to relive. Yeah, but there are loads of other tournaments, like the US Open and the Australian How Open. How soon after an event happens is it appropriate to relive it? Oh, couple of days. Palermo relived coming to you next week. <laughs> I mean, that is the tennis podcast normally, right? Well, yes, that's true. <laughs> that's true. How the the Olympics being put back a year, possibly more. Let's be honest; it is not a given that the Olympics will go ahead in twenty twenty one, and that itself is is interesting because how much do do players sort of center their season around it when when it's when it is a movable feast still. I mean, we've had Glastonbury this week say that they don't think they'll be able to go ahead in, in 2021. The likely next Glastonbury festival will be 2022. Um, yeah, how, how much of a different complexion does that put on things? I remember when I spoke to to Michael Chang for, for Olympics Relived a, a few weeks ago, uh, for, for Tennis Relived rather a few weeks ago, I asked him about how significant the Tokyo Olympics was going to be for Kane Ishikori this year and and what different spin its cancellation or its postponement puts on things. And he said it was going to be the the main drive this year. The the year, the schedule, the fitness was going to be building up to Tokyo. And actually he was anxious that that Kay's fitness wouldn't be right for this year and it could end up being a blessing in disguise for him for next year. And that's certainly something that Monica Puig said as well. You know, defending her her gold medal is a big deal to her. And I, I do think she'd do it on one leg if she had to. But it sounded like she didn't think she probably would be physically fit to properly defend it this year, whereas she might be in a position to next year. But then on the other side of the coin, you've got Roger Federer, he's going to be basically 40, basically 40 in Tokyo next year. Novak Djokovic is going to be 34, nearing 35, 34 and a half. Um, and of course, less of a big deal for Serena because she's already got one, but she's going to be pushing 42. Yeah, I, I think some of those players may well prioritise the Olympics just because of those reasons and because it what it means to them. Um, I think there will be some some players that given the instability, may just decide to shelve it. Um, may feel as though they can't be in limbo like that. All right, Olympic party pooper over there. <laughs> just shelve it. Gotta, yeah. Got to keep it real, Catherine. Eight, eight episodes, more Whitaker joy than you've ever experienced, and we've got <laughs> icy on the cake, shelve it. <laughs> <laughs> Can I interest you in rounding off our Olympics relived experience with some news of our old friend Matthew Emmons 
Oh, oh yeah. Which Go on, Matthew. Now this is a little late. Uh, it should have been in the London 2012 edition. Um, and he joins us now. But uh, Sarah Willand, who's been doing our research, if, oh my God, if only. Uh, Sarah Willand, who's been doing our research for our fun Olympic facts. Uh, she has at the last minute pulled a rabbit out of the hat with some Matthew Emmons news. Um, it doesn't start off brilliantly, but just just bear with it, okay? If you'll recall, Matthew Emmons is the one that in... when When did his Olympic journey begin? Uh, was it I feel in... like we met him in Athens. I think it was Athens. Yes, he was. Hang on. No. So he won gold in Sydney in 2000. In 2004, he was defending his gold medal and was on target to retain his title when he ended up uh, in the final round shooting his opponent's target and coming eighth. He went to drown his sorrows in a bar and met the woman who had become his wife. Lovely. Um, then in Beijing in 2008, um, his, his journey continued. Uh, he was again leading with only a single shot between him and the gold, uh, when his gun went off unexpectedly. So that is where the cliffhanger of the Matthew Emmons tale, uh, ended last time around in London 2012. Well, in 2010, Matthew Emmons contracted thyroid cancer. He uh, then made a complete recovery in time for the Olympic Games and won bronze in London in 2012. How great is that? Um, Unfortunately, it doesn't... it doesn't end up and this story doesn't end in a very Olympic way. Sarah says he didn't do so well in in 2016, 19th, I think, and seemingly without drama. I'm I'm quite happy to 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 just dine off the old but, cancer recovery yeah, and bronze. So long medal, as he's thanks. happy and healthy and still with the wife, which we've got no evidence to the contrary. Um, yeah, what? all good news for Matthew Emmons. <laughs> and, and what a what an Olympic journey that is. He's competed at five Olympics and won the gold in the first one. Yeah. And, and, and still kept coming back for more. And presumably in shooting, he can keep going for donkey's ears. Unless his eyesight goes. But I don't think he's that old. Googling. Well, he's Googling going to have Matthew a new Evans. rival soon, isn't he, by the name of Catherine Whitaker? <laughs> I mean, shooting or I, I feel like the barrier to entry for shooting is lower than for for horse racing. He's still going. He's an active rifle shooter. Is there um, a, is there a rifle shooting podcast? Because I mean, if not, <laughs> this might be the most coverage he's he's received um, in a while. <laughs> he is thirty nine years of age. I reckon he's got some good years left in him. Agreed. Yeah. So all eyes on Matthew for the hopefully. Tokyo 2021 Olympics. Um, it felt like a fitting way to round off our Olympics relived experience. Superb. Superb indeed. It's been a pleasure, folks. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, we'll be back with more live tennis to talk about on Monday. We'll be reviewing Palermo, looking ahead to Lexington. I've seen reports that players are in town for Lexington. I think Coco Goff has arrived, hasn't she? Serena mm-hmm. Williams is on her way. I'm going to be covering that for, for Prime Video, if I can remember how to present on the telly. That's a TBC. 
fingers crossed we, for me we believe in you <laughs> um so yeah talking about actual tennis but it's been a joy to do olympics re- well to do all of tennis relived but um yeah it'll be back don't worry we're going to be doing us open relived uh not daily so details of that coming shortly thanks to all of our contributors all of our interviewees um you've you've made this show you really have we've had some absolutely glorious contributions over the course of the last 10 days or so and it's been a pleasure to tell the stories we'll um we'll see you soon a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.